Richard Edelman, the founder of the world's largest public relations firm, once said that public relations is based on truth, trust, and transparency. Another quote attributed to Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, was, if I were down to my last penny, I would invest it on PR. But what are the truth and the myths of this industry and what is its future? To find out about that, we have interviewed two of Europe's best researchers on this field. Join me, let's go. First one is Anadi. Hi, Anna. Hi, Sebastian. <laughs> so Anna, uh, uh, she's a professor doctor. Uh, she obtained her PhD from the University of West Scotland. She's now a professor, professor of public relations and corporate communications at the uni at Quadriga University of Applied Science in Berlin, where we were kindly invited to uh, record one of our uh, one of your podcasts with the World Camp during the German election. So thanks for that. That's right. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but before that, you have you had an amazing career. You uh, you worked, lived, and studied in the USA uh, under a Fulbright scholarship. Uh, but also in Belgium, uh, in Bahrain, Thailand, and the UK. On top of that, you are the chair of the Digital Communication Awards in Berlin since 2015, and a member of the Institute for Public Relations Measurement Commission since 2018. Have I got it right? Yes, yeah, that's right. So we were wondering, right, when uh, when we've met <laughs> with with your next guest. Now we figured it all out. So 2018, that's correct. Um, there are topics that are very related in a sense to what I research and um, what I'm very interested in. Um, so measurement and evaluation, I think it's it's at the core of successful public relations. Um, but my international experience has also taught me that we underestimate and undervalue culture. Um, and so this is one of the other things that comes into into a lot of my research and, and teaching. Thanks for having me today. Of course, uh, my pleasure. I will now uh, introduce you to Thomas Stockel. Uh, he comes from the private sector. He has a strong private sector background and he uh, and I will pick up on his Twitter bio, which I found it hilarious. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he's a passionately European, which is uh, what our community is about. Outspoken introvert, we'll see about that now. <laughs> Curious about how we think. Humble about how little I know. And he's the host of the Small Data Forum podcast. And he's currently a lecturer at the uh, Quadri Quadriga University of Applied Science, where he teaches uh, political communication, he's pursuing the political communications PhD, and uh, he teaches on a broad range of topics where he brings his, uh, his private background, or his background in the private uh, sector. Welcome, Thomas, to, to our episode. Thank, thank you, Sebastian, and hi, Anna, good to see you again. Very good to see you, too. Not, we don't, not that we don't see each other regularly on Zoom. That's quite right. <laughs> um, Sebastian, my... My main academic focus currently, the PhD in political communication and most of my lecturing is at Bournemouth University in, uh, in the UK. And then occasionally I do some lecturing at uh, Quadriga pre-pandemic that was in Berlin in person. And well, this year it was, it was online, which was, which was great fun, but not really the same thing. So 
Um, I'm originally from Germany. I've lived in the UK for 21 years in London. And um, the, well, you can guess where the passionately European thing comes from. So 20, <laughs> 2016 is continuing to creating deep marks in my, in my psychology. Um, I, I was a PhD student before in, in, in Germany. I studied, um, I was very much focused on understanding public opinion and discourse around high-risk technology. This, is, this goes back a long way, but it links to, of course, what's happening now with public opinion and the pandemic and the role of the media, fake news and everything. So um, I worked for about 20 years in media intelligence in, in various roles and um, have now gone back more into academia. But what really interests me is when you have these two Venn diagrams, one for practice and one for academia, the bit where they meet, that's that's where my real interest lies. That's where I'm trying to bring sort of, you know, my two main main interests and, and experience over the years to bear and, and develop, you know, better better concepts and better models for teaching public communication, but then also how it's going to be applied in practice. And both Anna and I share that passion and work on it together as often as we can. Yeah, I mean we are so I mean we are so grateful to to have you uh, and to talk about the the topic that you you've been putting a lot of thought into, which is public relations. I started with a quote uh, that you've probably come across from Bill Gates, but I've I've got um, just to to start landing onto this uh, onto this topic. Our community is is uh, is formed by members of by professionals in in the the public affairs, communications, campaign industry, but still there is, there is this type of uh, myth around what public relations uh, actually entail. And I, I found two quotes which perhaps um, um, show uh, the two sides of the, of the same coin, perhaps. And I want to hear your thoughts on them. And then we, we will talk a little bit more about the, what's coming up, what's the future of public relations. So I have, the, the first one uh, from John D. Rockefeller, who was considered the, the wealthiest American of all time. He said, next to doing the right thing, the most important thing is to let people know you are doing the right thing. And so we land here on the first concept around public relations. No, it's probably like more uh, something loable uh, to do and, and it's the right thing to to do, of course, after you have done the thing that is considered to be the right one, you communicate and you let everyone know what you have done. But first, you do the right thing. Uh, the other quote, however, I, I, I am too Americanized this morning. I don't know why, but uh, I found it from, from uh, the 60th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, and he said, uh, what kills a skunk is the publicity it gives itself, uh, which is of course, it's a more, <laughs> a more funny. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there you go. I think uh, those are probably two competing theories about public relations. But I would like to hear from you. Uh, what's your approach? What's your, you know, how you see public relations as a field of study, but also as a field of uh, to practitioner, no? to, to exercise, not only to study. Anna? Oof, uh, easy, easy answers to, <laughs> to tricky questions. Um, 
first your american experience is not singular um a lot of the history of public relations in particular is um, very north american um part of it is due to the fact that the first efforts to put together a history um, of public relations comes from from north america the other is that the frequency of publication is much higher coming from north america so in in a sense you know, it's like it's like entering a library and the choices that you you have, in a sense, give you this idea of what the main discourse would be. Um, and so they happen to be North American um, or uh, American, like US American. And therefore, these are where your views are. Uh, now, going back to the two quotes that you gave us, um, they do go to the core of what Thomas and I more and more call persuasive uh, communication, so persuasive public communication, um, where one recognizes the tool, so the necessary, um, the necessity of building awareness for something that is being done, awareness in a sense and recognition uh, into the minds and, and hearts of of a counterpart, so someone you talk to with or you want to know about you. The other is um, probably the aspect that most people would like to shun away that do work in corporate communications or in public affairs, and that is the publicity aspect. Um, and there's a lot of, again, a lot of history there. <laughs> um, a lot of scholars have associated publicity in particular with P.T. Barnum, for instance, as well as in the United States, right? The gentleman who has um, ensured that uh, a traveling circus would have uh, people <laughs> joining its, its shows. And uh, it is notoriously known for doing whatever was possible so that people would come, right? And so that includes, you know, cheating, lying, shocking. Um, and so that stigma for publicity of not being so fair, so transparent, so honest has been maintained and transmitted. And it now turned into, uh, you know, such, such a dirty word. Um, so um, public relations in, in a sense, to go back to what your question is, what we want to establish um, is persuasive communication. Um, and it's organized in the sense that both organizations, institutions, um, and even associations in, in the public, right, um, can determine for themselves that they want to convince others to, to hear their, their part and, and possibly react, so behave in a, in a certain way. Um, and in this sense, it is organized because, you know, they use research and they come up with strategies and, and they have tactics to uh, to make that happen. Uh, but one of the other things that Thomas and I do insist upon is that any sort of communication that has the advantage of getting itself organized uh, needs to be accountable and has responsibility. Um, and so more and more what Thomas and I have been advocating for is um, the recognition that communication has long-term effects and therefore whoever is involved in this exercise, if you want to call it like that, needs to understand that what they do is not only something that stays for tomorrow, but rather it has long-term effects uh, that they need to live up to and assume them for, for themselves. So I hope that that clarifies a little bit, you know, what you 
what you were answer asking asking us. Thomas, what do you think? <laughs> Anything to add? So, <laughs> take it away, Thomas. You've said it all. I go off and have a coffee now. Um, one of my one of my hobby horses in 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 all of this is the is the history of the field in a way, a history of public communication, if you want, and. Uh, Sebastian, when you quote John D. Rockefeller at me, and my, <laughs> <laughs> um, with with relation to um, with public relation, then my instant reaction is, oh, Ivy Lee, Ivy Lee, who was John D. Rockefeller's publicity man mm. uh, in in the late 1900s, and then um, in, in in the late 1800s and then early 1900s, and. It's, there are two people who are seen as the sort of the fathers of public relation, and one of them is this gentleman, Ivy Ledbetter Lee, who was John D. Rockefeller's publicity man, and the other one is Edward Bernays, who most people know as the father of PR. They both they worked sort of in parallel, they didn't know each other too well. What's interesting about Lee, without spending too much time on the on the history there, is, is also that he in the 1920s he became an advisor to um, a Dr. Josef Goebbels in Germany and got invited by IG Farben to advise them on public relations. The, as we say, the rest is history. And Ivy Lee isn't remembered so well in, in, in the history books of public relations. So that's to, that to John D. Rockefeller. Um, and then another quote that you mentioned at the beginning about Bill Gates, and if he had one dollar, he, he would spend it on public relations. I'll give you another quote from a gentleman called John Wanamaker, who's seen as one of the first big marketing folks. And his quote, whether he actually said it or not, I don't know, nobody does. But his quote is, I know that 50% of my advertising investment works. I just don't know which one. <laughs> So this, you know, this this is forever fascinating, and will forever keep people like me in the job who deal mm. with with with, with, <laughs> with data and numbers and and you know trying to figure out how we can find signals in the noise and get get better at understanding what's happening next. Whilst mm. at the same time, we know we will never fully understand any of this. I'm I'm my interest in the history of PR is also closely related to psychology and social psychology, and um, you know, looking at how the practice of, of PR was 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 carried out in the early uh, in the early 1900s um, by Edward Bernays, who happened to be the nephew of Sigmund Freud. But that's another long story. Yeah. Um, this is where <laughs> all is. This, you know this is where all this stuff comes from. And then when when I look at how PR is being practiced today, um, this, the, the, the same social psychological principles still apply. We haven't evolved that much te technologically. We have evolved enormously. We now have social media and everything is fragmented. Um, but we go back to the same principles. Anna mentioned persuasive communication. I had a class yesterday with students where I said, well, I'm, what I'm teaching you right now has the label PR, but we could also call it public communication. Some people call the marketing communication, look at the marketing communications mix. And what I'm really interested in is Three as two aspects. The first is communication with a purpose, and the second one is persuasion. So, purposive, persuasive communication is what I'm interested in. That can be good; it can be used for good, or it could be used for bad. But that that's ultimately the space that we're operating in, and what we're trying to figure out. All that work that Anna and I have been doing together over the last few years, and inviting people to 
uh, contribute to our future of communication edition at the SHS journal um, goes down to figuring out how we can how we can get better at defining in the best possible way and then also teaching in the best possible way what this purposive persuasive communication thing is actually meant to mean how do we do this in a way that improves from where we have been and where we are and looking at the pandemic and some of the things that have gone wrong in public communication in political communication we can analyze that we, we know where some of the problems come from we get we get leaders in the field of public communication such as um, richard edelman standing up and saying um, the social contract is broken we need a new social contract and therefore and one of his conclusions then is, and therefore companies need to become their own media companies. Okay, so that's an interesting approach, and I think we should discuss that a little bit more. Um, this is just my starter for 10. So we need to see the field of communication, I think, in a more rounded way than we have done. We mustn't forget the past of the field and how it's related to, to, to today. And then we need to come up with the... Um, the right formula. Formula is actually the wrong word. It should be plural. It should be formulae, because there mm. need to be there need to be several ones that we need to be able to operate in parallel, um, and that's what we're trying to figure out. So let's see how far we get today. <laughs> well, I think that that was really good introduction to to the topic and the and the and the discussion that we are going to be having today, but. One of the things that we we love at the at the European Campaign Playbook is is actually to have this you know these two three uh, insights from from you who you know you are on the on the uh, front line of research you teach this to new students you probably uh, also engage in, in consulting with clients in the field of PR and what we would like to to hear from from you today and. What we would like this playbook to be about is what are the key trends that you see in the field of PR in the future, and it can be um, it can be like you said, it can be from from how the field is actually uh, taught at the at the university, but also what do you see out there? What uh, changes are you know are already happening in the in the in the industry, so uh, I would like to give the the floor maybe to to Anna now, and you can and we can start the discussion and exchange the you know our impressions about about that. I would also be happy to to share some best practices or some things that I've seen whilst you know working with other campaigners, with other uh, communication professionals, especially here in Brussels, uh, where PR relations relation uh, public relations it's it's quite a uh, it should be more uh, a more prominent topic, but we we are slowly getting there. Uh, Anna, please take it away. Ooh, um, well, you're there are two different things. I mean, Thomas and I um, are trying to to have this sort of imagination exercise of how the public relations of the future should look like and what we should consider. Um, and and in doing that, we are. Um, having multiple conversations, both with practitioners and um, and educators and academics to see how that sounds with them. And then there are things, obviously, on the other side that we notice that are coming up as being what you would qualify as trends, so something that comes more often 
into these conversations and into this research. So going back to your question, um, there are several changes that we've noticed um, quite prominently in research. Um, one is when it comes to history that we're moving away from a single chronological presentation, uh, sort of a single truth and origin. Um, and so in this sense, we see more uh, approaches to historiography. So how is history made and who is making it? Um, questioning um, the roots of those stories as well as the person who's telling uh, that, that sort of story. Um, and therefore trying to put the history of public relations in its context. So in this sense, there's plenty now of research coming out of other areas and regions. So not only the United States as a, as a contestation, if you want, as a challenging uh, approach to this fathers of public relations, you know, the um, heir of Sigmund Freud and, mm -hmm. uh, and the good friends of Goebbels. Would you, for example, say that there is, the, there is a growing field of, you know, research being done by Amer by Europeans in Europe with a probably uh you know with distinct features or is it still the the field like too Americanized uh, like no no oh, okay not not at all uh, I mean the field of public relations research is very active uh, there are several journals now that are very specific so academic journals if that's what you're looking into and there are um, way more others. Um, so there are about seven public relations journals with this name per se. And then there are many, many others that under the title of communications or marketing communications or you know po uh, political communication would, uh, would touch upon um, the field. And they question, they go to the root of what is public relations there for? Who benefits from this exercise? And how how happy are we <laughs> as, as humans, as societies with this? Um, going in a sense back to the, the fact that with persuasive communication that is organized so that we can identify that someone puts an effort in it, has means, whether it's financial or people, um, that there's an uneasiness to it. Um, and so there's this question of, look, am I being manipulated? Am I being lied to? Uh, or is this something that I truly believe in and support? So, no, there is um, not only European research. There is um, a very strong uh, up-and-coming uh, African school, for instance. Um, and there are differences within Africa. Um, there's a... Um, there's also a great effort coming uh, to, to have research on public relations from Asia. Um, with probably a much stronger Chinese contingent than uh, you know South um, Southeast Asian, um, and and it's there where you see these influences uh, of the core and of the frequency you know of the uh, 80s and and models and proposals of, of history, and then the contestation uh, of that. So that doesn't really work for us. We don't really like this. Uh, how does how how do we go about this? So that's. But of course, what Anna is saying is all um, is is all correct, and that is all happening, and it's encouraging. The point is that I think we we still have um, we still have centers of of power, if you want, and mm. and influence when it comes to the field that are very much skewed to Western thinking, that are still, in a sense, more skewed to the U.S. Mm. than to than to Europe, but they're clearly. Um, they're clearly English language focused. And then we also have something that's this, this weird phenomenon, weird as in an acronym for 
W-E-I-R-D, Western, educated, rich, industrialized, and democratic nations that, mm. that, that, that pretty much dominate the discourse. So, yes, there's a lot happening. Um, there's a lot, a lot coming out of Africa. We need to look at Asia more, in a sense, yeah. if we want to become more inclusive. So we need to get a better understanding of China. You know, in, in, in sheer volumes, we're looking at um, countries with populations of more than a billion people in China, in, in India, we look at Southeast Asia, and how is that coming up? So, so I think the field as such needs to figure out how it can not just talk about becoming more conclusive, uh, inclusive, but actually doing it. Yeah. And then there's an ongoing diversity issue. Um, you know, we just, <laughs> we just need to look at, this, at the gender split in, um, in, in public relations organizations and on the lower ranks of executive roles, there are many more women. On the higher ranks, there are many more men. So that's an issue um, that I think we need to continue to address. One trend I want to mention um, very briefly is uh, an announcement that was made by Tesla, in, in fact, by Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla last year. He said, well, uh, in a tweet, because that's how he communicates, um, he said, well, we are going to disband our um, PR operations, which created a huge um, reaction and, and, and backlash almost in the, in the industry by um, PR uh, practitioners, of course, because they, they see their field um, undermined um, by, by journalists. And there was a lot of misunderstanding going on in that because... In fact, what Elon Musk um, and what Tesla eliminated was the media relations function with, with, within the organization. He said there's no value in this any longer. What they have not eliminated is the investor relations um, function, talking to, um, you know, talking to shareholders and, and making sure that the commercial side of communication works properly. Um, there is also Tesla perfectly understand how critical communication is for them as an organization. It's just a matter of how they execute that is evolving, is changing, and they just put down a very disruptive stand and also made a public statement that I think was slightly misread. What's, what's your take on that, Anna? Um, it goes back to our research, doesn't it? And, and some of the stuff that I do with our students here at, at Quadriga. Um, when, when we meet with them um, for the first course, um, I get them to fill a meme, um, a public relations meme, right? So, um, and, and it has six little boxes and, uh, that goes around uh, topics like what I think I do, what my mom thinks I do, what my boss mm -hmm. thinks I do, uh, what I really do, right? And so it... What we're trying in, in a very playful way is to identify sort of this gap between aspiration and self-perception, but as well as reflected perception, so what others think about ourselves. And there's a great disconnect between what people say they do, which is usually very tactical. I answer to emails all day long, or I try to, you know, herd a bunch of cats, which uh, presents public relations, you know, this uh, facilitator of pampering function. Um, and the the aspiration that communicators have to be facilitators, licensed, if you want, facilitators of negotiation. So they want to be part of this conversation because they have the research, they have the understanding of what goes on around them. So going back to what Thomas has said, 
there's a great disconnect. Part of it is also historically inherited between what we understand public relations to be, which is mainly media relations, and what public relations practitioners themselves and the industry that has evolved around public relations wants itself to be, which is um, which which wants to facilitate this negotiation with stakeholder environments. There's no way to say it easier, right? So you want to have, you assume the fact that you have values that you're supporting themselves and then you actively want to promote them around your communities but in a way that also soaks in understands listens and reacts to in in a meaningful way to both positive and negative feedback so as a as a trend if we go back to that we see continuously this disconnect growing and this disconnect as long as it perpetuates so it remains there it brings loads of problems once um you know, it's about self-worth. <laughs> the other is about what the others understand uh, about us. Um, so our suggestion has been um, to to take comms and to sort of demystify, if you want, explain what goes into persuasive communication at a much, much earlier stage uh, at, and at the much wider um, area, right? So instead of just focusing on teaching public relations and public relations schools um, at university level, we, we actually should talk, should talk about hand in hand about media literacy and public relations literacy um, with much younger audiences, regardless of their, um, their specialism. And equally, we should talk about these, these aspects of literacy, persuasive communication, um, to to other um, academic specialisms. So that includes STEM, that includes science. Um, and it's not only, so let's go back, public relations is not only about media relations, it's about communicating, you know, in a sense, values endorsed to others. And you need to understand that there's responsibility that comes to that. Equally, you need to understand that there's a process through which convincing happens, right? And it doesn't have to be all dirty. Um, it's it's a very sincere. Both Thomas and I are passionate about what we do. That doesn't necessarily mean you know that we're uh, you know manipulating you or brainwashing you into believe what what we believe in. Just quickly responding to to Anna's point, um, and also I mentioned at the beginning that I'm really interested in where practice and academia sort of overlap. So when I then look at the the theorizing and the abstracting of of where we are on the one hand and and learning from and instructing the real world on the other hand and people talk about these concept of the social contract and the license to operate now my question then is social contract okay so who who ratifies that social contract how do we go about that and on on the side of license to operate who grants those licenses mm. um to in in to give you one example of public opinion so this this morning um, I was listening to BBC Breakfast in that hotel I was staying in. It was running. Normally I don't, so I was just um, watching this. And so I saw the, and I'm going to be a little bit flippant now, so um, forgive me for that. The, the UK minister for deflecting questions was on television. And of course, <laughs> that, could have been, that could have been any UK minister. So there he was in his office. It was 7.30 in the morning. He was wearing a dark suit and tie. He looked very formal. Left and right of him were Union Jacks, and he was being asked questions by the BBC um, breakfast hosts, and it was to do with COVID and, and 
you know, things that aren't going right in the country right now. And there he was um, deflecting those questions, not really answering them. And it was all about, I was looking at that and, and thinking, it's that that is, I understand what's going on here. It's a ritual, it's symbolic communication, this, but this guy is representing the you know, public communication on behalf of the government. So what if I take this now and sit down with students and discuss this in a very practical sense? Where, where, where do I start and where does that lead me to? And how am I going to avoid in doing that, not falling into the trap of becoming a left, liberal, quasi, moral, imperative focused um, teacher who, who, who says, this is wrong and the practice must be doing something different and we must be more inclusive. Um, what gives me the right to, to take that position and to decide what's right and wrong in that, in, in, in that game? And I do struggle with that sometimes and I do want to find better answers that, that work better in this space. I, th I think it's significant. I think we need to take political communicators seriously. When we look at the White House, now we have in, in Jen Psaki, we have somebody who's, you know, to all intents and purposes, for my judgment, she is very professional. She is politically partisan because she represents an organization. She's professional. Before her, we had somebody called Kelly McEnany, who filled exactly the same role that Jen Psaki does now. I have a different view of her. How do I reconcile that and how do I really make sense of that? I, I struggle sometimes. I mean, I know where my beliefs are, but to translate that into something that I feel I can actually defensively teach people to go out in the world with a, with a clearer understanding, better media literacy, better civic literacy, um, is not an easy undertaking. And one of the things, though, that we've been trying to do, and this is one of the, the solutions, in a sense, that we, we found out, and it resonates with what others um, are also saying, is that we need to acknowledge the fact that the public relations um, service, if you want, is not a service, but, um, you know, that, that the public relations exercise within any sort of organization um, cannot be devoid from the individual values. Right. We've for so long in that history that you've presented at the beginning of our conversation, public relations has been presented as this neutral individual or neutral department that was so to themselves that was highly servile, you know, and servant to the organization. Um, and so what we're saying is that in, in this day and age, when we talk so much about our own values, finding our own purpose, we cannot simply um, split the, the individual for what they're doing. And so there are several things that we've said is necessary, is that when we, we start to teach about what is good and right in public relations, we start asking people what is good and right for them to try to un identify what their boundaries are. And we're not the only ones who, when uh, when we approach public relations ethics, we start with personal values, and we discuss what those are. Um, and then we, what we do, and what I do, and I try to do in my teaching, at least, is to try to challenge um, practitioners and and students to to consider how those values are reflected into the organizations that they work with, and how far are they willing to fight for those boundaries. Now that's all fine and dandy, right? Because that would mean that if that is being achieved, then our students and practitioners are going to find well-being at work, right? And are going to find fulfillment at work. 
uh, finding either a home or a challenge that is reflective to them. The problem, though, that we're still left with is that if we join organizations that we like and that that are sort of our reflections, what we tend to do then we create bubbles around us, right? Values-based bubbles. And these bubbles will harden because the more comfortable we are, the more we're not going to want to leave our comfort zones. And this is where Thomas and I um, have had multiple conversations and said, well, public relations, again, historically has said that they want to make the world sort of a better place, right? Communicate, negotiate. And so public relations has given themselves a mandate to break these boundaries and bubbles. So what we need to ensure is that by talking about responsibility and accountability is that we remind the individual practitioner that while it is all wonderful that you reflect on your own values, that you reflect on how that is reflected on the organization, you also think of the long term. And therefore, that from once in a while, you think of how do you break that bubble, right? And and so what we were what we were saying is that one of the things that we need to probably change, we'd like to see changing, is that public relations is not understood as a servant to the organization, as it's been through this media relations lens, but rather as considering the social benefit, right? And if we do that, if you have someone in every room and decisions are being taken saying, okay, but in the long term, what what is this going to do to us, to my neighbors, to, I don't know, the squirrels in the park, if that's uh, what, what you're curious about, um, that even that question, as simple as it is, um, potentially uncomfortable, that would lead to a different sort of conversation. So... Start, acknowledge, yes, you do have your own values. Yes, you can align them with, with the organization. And then obviously each and one of us have boundaries to play with. But think of the long term and think of sort of the world that you want to leave behind you. And in that sense, then ask the difficult questions that, that come out of that. Perfect. So I, um, uh, I would like to, to end on that a positive note and, and and a call for, you know, in the end, it's it's individual responsibility and individual ethics. Uh, I, I firmly believe that when we step into our, you know, office or our organization, we are still individuals. So we, we are not magically transformed into corporate machines. And I do <laughs> believe, I do believe that more ethics, perhaps this is a topic for the future, uh, we can talk about ethics in, in our industries. I mean, I, I work in campaigns. I cannot be, you know, I uh, could be like guilty as charged. Uh, but I do believe in the power of ethics to at least avoid the, the most, uh, well, the, the 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 worst scenarios where you're really, you know, you are not doing the right thing and you're clearly not even making a, you know, a service to your own organization. It's probably counterproductive uh, sometimes. Thank you very much, uh, Anna, Thomas. I, I really enjoyed this chat. I, one of the things we want, we like to do is to, to bring people, of course, practitioners, but also people who are studying the, the field on a more you know, systematic way. And I think you brought us like this structure, no? And, and we, we really value that. I hope everyone enjoys this episode. And I hope to see you in Berlin or in Brussels or, you know, anywhere in in Europe uh, uh, very soon. Thank you Thank very you much. Thank you, Sebastian, for having us. Thank you.
you were on mute, Thomas. So, um... <laughs> thank you. It was a real pleasure. Okay, thank you very much.